0: Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke three, twenty-one, and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. Father, may none in this room die. Without hearing those words by your Holy Spirit in their hearts, awakening them to everlasting life in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, help me unfold this. Amazing, otherworldly, historical event. Help me do it accurately to the glory of this great Savior, your eternal Son, I pray. Amen. In our passage, which this particular event Of the Holy Spirit descending. And God the Father's voice speaking. It's recorded by all four gospel writers. But Luke alone does something unique. He alone lets us know this happened while Jesus was praying while He was communing with the Father. The, the one lesson that we ought to get out of that, and what we're going to see, is that the key to the Holy Spirit's, let me use Bible terms, anointing, or the Holy Spirit's moving, guiding, changing us, For ministry, for love, the key is directly connected, that whole event, constantly with our activity of praying. Mere head knowledge is not the key. Merely getting our theology correct. Getting the gospel right. As indispensable as all those things are. They alone are not the power of God that we're desperate for. We constantly are moving toward a desolate heart. Towards God and are in need Of the Holy Spirit filling and that comes through asking and asking and asking and asking it is one thing to know stuff it is another thing to act on what we know by praying by hanging out with the God that we know in Scripture so if you have your Bible and you turn to Luke three we're looking at these two verses and as we look at the structure of our passage one thing is clear Luke's focus is not on Jesus getting baptized his focus is on what happens right after he got baptized in other words verse 21 sets up what happens in verse 22 all the clauses in verse 21 are subordinate to what happens in verse 22 the main point of Luke's in this passage is that the heavens opened the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove and God spoke when did that happen? Under what circumstances did this event take place? Answer, verse 21. That's just simple structure of this text. When all the people were baptized, and then Jesus got baptized, and while He was in prayer... This amazing thing happens. And when Luke says, when all the people were baptized, this is what I think he means. Because we know he doesn't mean every Jew in first century Palestine was baptized. He's clear that they all were not baptized. I think it's his hyperbolic way of saying towards the end of John's ministry, all the people... Now here we come. Finally here comes Jesus towards the end here, of the the culmination of the Baptist ministry. They got baptized. And then Jesus gets baptized. And He comes up out of the water. And this man is praying. And Luke wants us to see that. And he says, see it? On the verge of His public ministry, He's praying. And then the heavens open." spirit descends and god speaks now luke does not concern himself with why did jesus get baptized <laughs> but we wonder i mean we should we've been with john the baptist for weeks now and we know that His ministry is a ministry of preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus gets baptized? He, he, he doesn't have any sin. He, he has no need for repentance. And so, what, what what's going on here? Okay. So, I just want to turn briefly to Matthew for a moment because Matthew is concerned about that problem. In Matthew 3, starting with verse 13, we see that he writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John in order to be baptized by Him. John Would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And so, picture it. Here we have. The sinless, eternal Son of God in true humanity, showing up at the Jordan River that day. Why did he do it? Well, his answer, according to Matthew, is, he said to John, "in order for us to fulfill all righteousness, or in order for us to do what's right." He helped? <laughs> Maybe a little. So, what does that mean, though? I don't know. Here, here's my best shot. For Jesus to submit to John's ministry of baptism, when you think about it, part of John's ministry of baptism was about God-wordness. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and we have seen repentance is a turning away from sin, turning to God. Okay? So for every other human being that got baptized by John, it's true. For them, it meant turning away from their sin and turning To God. But don't miss it. It also meant, therefore, turning to God. Being God Word. Being vertical. Trusting God. Worshipping God. And so as the perfect, eternal, sinless Jesus shows up. Part of what He's going to do, I think, is this. This is part of fulfilling our righteousness. He is affirming John the Baptist in his ministry. And when he's doing it, there's something very God-word, which is part of the John the Baptist ministry in baptism, that Jesus is no problem submitting to. He says, John, do it. I Am a true human being with real temptations like everybody else without sin. And I, by you dunking me in water here and showing, I am resolved to never sin. I am resolved to constantly. Turn from temptation to sin and rely on God the Father and delight in Him alone. He's the perfect model. Now, I say that very confidently because that in Luke's narrative is exactly the next thing he lets us know. After this, he's taken off alone 40 days. To be tempted by the devil. He is resolved as a human being to be perfectly Godward in the face of temptation of sin. So, John let it happen. There's no confession of sin here with Jesus because there is no sin in Him in order to confess. There's no repentance from sin to get forgiveness because He doesn't need forgiveness because He has never sinned. But He is identifying Himself with the core of the message which is turn to God. And He is identifying Himself with All those people who submitted truly to John's baptism in turning to God. And so there that day, there's just another man, according to the crowd, getting baptized by John. But according to heaven, it wasn't just another man. According to heaven, the Trinity comes and manifests God Himself in this moment of the inauguration of Mary's child's public ministry. And what I have started with, again, what Luke brings out is significant, is that this Heavenly manifestation happened, not by accident, while this man, who was tempted in all things like we, was praying. I'm going to get technical just for a moment, because it's really clearly here in the text. And I know you're not going to understand a couple of these words, but in the long run you understand and see what I want you to see. Luke, in the way he writes it in the original, contrasts the aorist participle with a present participle. This is where it's going to make sense. He contrasts on purpose the aorist participle. Jesus got baptized. Be real clear with it in translation. After he was baptized. That's done. And now the present participle. And while he was praying. Luke wants us to see that. He says, then this happened. Why does he do it? That's the question you, you gotta ask, especially when you when you look at the Bible. Why does Paul write that way? Why does Luke do that? Why is what is Matthew up to? What's Luke doing? I think one thing He's clearly doing is saying, are you all human beings? This human being, the only human being in all history and all existence who never sinned or fell. He did not have a sin nature. This one true, authentic man Needed to pray. How much more? Every one of us. This is an emphasis throughout Luke, like no other gospel. Luke makes the point constantly about. This man's prayer life. Especially at every significant corner of his life. Like his baptism. The beginning of his public ministry. When he's going to choose the twelve. Luke says he prayed. When Peter confesses finally. I get it. You're the Christ. Luke says, He prayed. In the Mount of Transfiguration, He prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Can't you pray with me? On the cross, He prayed. Luke's telling us something. If you just flip over to to chapter 5, just quickly, from 3 to 5. Luke writes, starting with verse 15, But now even more the report about Him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear Him and to be healed of their infirmities. What do you do, Jesus? But He would withdraw to desolate places be alone and pray. Over the next chapter 6 verse 12 In these days <clears throat> he went out to the mountain get it in these days this is a constant thing in these days he went out to the mountain to pray And all night he continued in prayer to God. So, here we are at the Jordan River. Let's get the real picture. Because if you've been here and you're listening, week after week after week of Luke, there's a whole piece going on here that we're supposed to see. This man is the second person of the Holy Trinity, who was implanted in the womb of Mary in chapter 1, who was born without a sin nature in chapter 2, who then shows up 12 years later in the Gospel, in the temple as a 12-year-old, who has a human 12-year-old soul brain and mind and disposition that has never been matched because he's unaffected by sin nature. And so we see him in the temple blowing the minds of the greatest scholars. Disappears from what we know. 20 years of silence. And he shows up. And what we're seeing therefore is after three decades, probably 33 summers and winters are going by in the life of Mary's child, having grown, expanded, developed, learned things he didn't know before, only in his human nature, not his divine nature. And he's developing. In an obscure village. As a handyman carpenter. And now he shows up. He submits to this real popular evangelist prophet guy. Named John. And what is that perfect man doing? Luke lets us know. He's praying. That's the setting for what we now see next. The heavens were opened. (laughs) I don't know what it looked like. I feel for movie makers. I mean, what do you do with that? But the, I don't know if clouds are split and sunbeams come down or what was seen, but the heavens were open; Something clearly was seen. And what we do know biblically in the Old Testament, that kind of language, that heavens were opened, it's, it's there in the Old Testament. And usually were these great, significant, amazing events of God to, with a prophet. For instance, in Ezekiel, he, the book opens up In chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, As I was among the exiles of the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Luke Luke uses this term another time in Acts. Right before Stephen is stoned to death. He said, I saw the heavens opened and I saw the Son of Man standing. So we read in our text, while Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily Form like a dove. So, I think one thing I must surmise about Jesus praying is that he's probably pretty directly praying for what he got—confirmation a supernatural manifestation and to come upon me with the anointing that I now need for these next number of years in my public ministry. So he's praying and that's what he gets. Now, I don't know exactly what they saw the way Luke words it here is God Himself the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like or as a dove. It's a literal translation. He's not saying the Holy Spirit's a bird or a particular kind of a bird, a dove. He's saying, what we know about doveness though, this is the kind of way, manifestation of the Spirit that came to rest upon the Messiah, upon Jesus, upon the Son of Mary as His ministry going public was inaugurated. They saw something. For instance, Matthew lets us know Jesus' perspective of this very event when he writes, quote, and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. You know, God can manifest himself as he wants. The Spirit is not flesh and bone or three-dimensional or physical, but he can certainly do what he wants to do. And there was something to see. In the Gospel of John, he lets us know what John the Baptist saw when he writes, and John the Baptist bore witness, quote, here's what John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, John, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, what we have from these texts and what we have clearly from Luke is that God the Holy Spirit upon the humanity of Jesus descended, came, and rested on Him in or like a dove. I I, I think this is what he means. A dove disposition. We still use these terms today. Are you on the left? Are you on the right? Are you a hawk when it comes to military? Or are you a dove? We use those terms. And it is essentially, this is the point here. He came upon Jesus with this dove anointing for His public ministry. Jesus said this way later. gives us a clue of the use of dove in the first century in, 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 in their context when He said in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, but be innocent, or tender as a dove. Now we have seen In Luke. And we have seen it during these paragraphs of John the Baptist. That yes, yes, yes. This Jesus, the Son of Mary, will judge the universe. And He will (coughs) take the chaff and burn it in judgment. All in the context of human beings... Or to flee from the anger or wrath of God. All that's true. And it's still true. And it's still future. But here, in this text, on that day, the Holy Spirit descended for His ministry. And He descended... Like a dove. He's anointed with the spirit of tenderness, gentleness, not with a sword. That is Jesus' ministry. And it was inaugurated on that day. The great Puritan theologian, 300 or so years ago, Thomas Goodwin, unfolds it this way. All apparitions that God at any time made of Himself, were not so much made in order to show to men or people what God is in Himself, in His totality He means, as it is to show us how He is affected toward us. means in what disposition does He have toward us right now. He's communicating that. He goes on. And... God does this in order to declare what effects He will work in us. For a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all of its ways, and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when He was just about to enter on the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner in Christ converse together. End quote. The point is that Jesus was and is. Profoundly gentle. Tender. Hear the words from his mouth. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Because I am gentle. And lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. God is saying by the Jordan River that day, Jesus, I anoint You <coughs> not with flamboyance and kingly apparel to strut around, But I anoint you for this ministry of meekness and gentleness like a dove. That's what he's saying. And that is confirmed by the actual words that God the Father speaks to Jesus. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, you got to listen carefully. Because we're supposed to know the Bible... And there's something profound in that short voice of the Father's. What He just said in those two parts, You are my beloved Son, and You, I am well pleased, are directly alluding to two Old Testament passages. The first part, You, Jesus, are my beloved Son, is referring to Psalm 2. With you I'm well pleased. My heart is delighted in you, is referring to Isaiah 42. And so, I want us to look at them. Turn to Psalm 2 first. In Psalm 2, verse 7, we read, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, as we look at Psalm 2, what is going on there that was written centuries before? What Psalm 2 is about is it's a Messianic psalm, it's about the son of David coming. And at the core, it's about Jesus the Messiah, His special, unique relationship as a Son to God the Father. And that relationship and His messianic mission is the basis for His kingly, messianic reign, rule reigning over the universe. And we've already seen in Luke, it's been clear, Gabriel says, the child in you, Mary, will be called the Son of God. So this is him. He has this unique relationship that no other human being will ever have, even though they're called son of God this is the eternal one who existed with God as God the second person now the child born of Mary 33 years or so old now the he in his very person is the one who could turn a rock into bread. He could leap off a cliff 130 feet high and come away unscathed. He has a unique relationship. He is the king, ruler, and sovereign of the universe. Okay, this is what Psalm 2 is about. Now, I'm just stay there because I'm going to read. It's not that long of a song. Hear it. Hear the prophecy. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. Christ, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, the kings of the earth say concerning God and His Christ. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, "As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree." Fast forward in your head for a second when God the Father will speak these words. Hear it. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... O kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Centuries later, at the Jordan River, a supernatural voice. Thunders. Jesus, you're him. You are this king, my beloved son. But this scary. Righteous King comes with the anointing of a dove. And that brings us to the other text that the Father's voice is alluding to. Isaiah chapter 42. When He says about His Son, With you I am well pleased. I'm delighted in You, My Son, Messiah, Servant. Isaiah 42, starting with verse 1. Behold My servant, whom I uphold, My chosen, in whom My soul delights. That's it. I'm delighted in Him, my Messiah, my King that I set on the throne, my Son in whom my soul delights. Read on. (coughs) Picture the Jordan River one day. I have put my Spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. Hear it. A bruised reed He will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Let me just stop for a moment. Uh, Oh, read this, This grass, long grass would just get broken and trampled so easily. And this one that's bruised, he says, you want to know about this one? You want to know? Let me just put the whole Bible together. You want to know about his first coming? He is so tender. For you who are like bruised grassy reeds, he's not going to break you. Your life candles are just part of most of human history, before Edison and all this stuff. Candles you know how we do candles to write. You know, smell good in the bathroom, and it, the fire's going just about out. It's just, it's just the wicks going out. This is who he is. Is that you? He's not going to snuff that fire out. He's really really tender with you. This is what Isaiah is prophesying. Let me pick up there again then. A bruised reed, He will not break it. And a faintly burning wick, He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. See, the stunning thing about Jesus and Isaiah 42... Is it, it's clear there in Isaiah 42 too. He is the one who has the right to rule, to reign, and to bring forth, and to establish justice to all the nations. But He says, when He comes, He will not use that power and that authority to break a bruised, read or to snuff out a flickering candle. Because he is profoundly gentle, caring, tender, dove-like, not In this context, hawk like with a sword or a jet with missiles on it. The Spirit's dove anointing upon Jesus is the core of His ministry. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke it's easy my burden it's light see here's the point it's those people it's the bruised reed It's the weak, the undone (coughs) reeds of the world that Jesus comes to with profound tenderness, gentleness, in order to change them. In order to heal in order to save them. He doesn't come to blow out your fire that's already almost out, if you're one of those. He comes to fan your candle aflame for Him. That's the theology behind these texts that come forth at the Jordan River. It is a magnificent scene. There with John the Baptist comes up. Jesus is praying. And we read again. The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus knows Scripture real well. He knows exactly these texts. What Luke is letting us know is, picture it, the voice came and said, Son of Mary, I am pleased with your incarnation. I am pleased with your growth and your development for these last 33 years. I am pleased with the way you have humbled yourself and lived in obscure, humble circumstances for decades as a blue-collar worker. And how when your dad, Joseph, passed away, you took up the mantle to support with sweat and your skill in carpentry, the family. I'm pleased with your prayer life. With your absolute devotion to the written Scripture. And your devotion to me in intimacy, in time alone. He has to be meaning that, doesn't he? And he means something more. Because this day is his inauguration for public ministry. I'm pleased with all these three decades and what this day represents the beginning of this public ministry and where it has always been purposed to be culminated at the cross. The three decades of silence, obscurity. He's a nobody. Now he's going to go into public ministry. And it's going to lead to the most pivotal event In the universe. Or let's put it back in its theological context. Isaiah 42. You're the one and I'm well pleased. And this is how you're going to do your public ministry. This is how you're going to minister. This is who you are. And that spirit and that anointing of tenderness is upon you. And Isaiah 42 will lead to Isaiah 53. Where the Father's voice says, or Isaiah says about God the Father. It pleased the Father to crush Him. To kill Him on behalf of many. No wonder at this pivotal moment down by the Jordan River we have the entire Trinity manifesting Himself. It was the second person of the Godhead in true humanity who walked to the Jordan River that day. It was the third person of the Godhead who descended upon Him in dove-like Form and anointing and disposition. And it was the first person of the Holy Trinity who thundered and said, I'm really pleased with you, Jesus. The eternal, holy, righteous, Sin-hating God of the universe conspired to tenderly save bruised, broken, wrath-doomed sinners. And that's what's happened. And the question of the universe to everyone is this, are you one of them? And you say, I don't know. Then hear the gospel plea after what you've just heard. Here it is. Then become one of them, be one of them who responds to Jesus'. Tender, loving, dove disposition when he said, "Come to me. All of you who are confused, heavy burdened, sin-laden, you're a wreck, come, and I will give you true. So as I close here, let's not miss what Luke very deliberately emphasizes in his delivery of this day. He gives us the son of Mary. There's Jesus. He's 33, maybe 34 years old. He comes. He knows what's happening. This is the opening of his public ministry. And what is that man doing? He's praying. But Jesus, you are, this one person with two distinct natures now are the eternal God who became a man and thus he needed, which was no different from him wanting. He needed and wanted the Holy Spirit's empowerment for what he is embarking on, finally. If the eternal <laughs> creator of the universe and his humanity. Coveted, prayerfully, dispositionally, speaking with, listening to Almighty God the Father. How much more every single one of us God-belittling sinners who are being saved by Him and who constantly sin, have need to pray for the anointing, the moving, and the working of the Holy Spirit in our Little teeny ministries of life. Listen to Jesus' exhortation. Later on in Luke in chapter 11. Where He says. If you then. Who are evil. Know how to give good gifts to your own kids. How much more will the heavenly Father. Give the Holy Spirit. To those who. Ask Him if we want to bear more fruit in our lives. It's directly illustrated throughout Luke and clearly in our passage this morning that that's directly connected to praying, communing with God, listening to His written Word as you meditate upon it. Being away from the kids and speaking honestly. And when we don't have desire, begging, give me desire to want to pray, even right now, let the Holy Spirit, like electricity, Act upon my soul this day. It's not that Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit and now He got it. Okay? And it's not like if we're believers now, we don't have the Holy Spirit. By definition, we do. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. It's that, biblically, we are desperate to covet the moving and more and more of the Infinite One. He has so much more to impart and to give to us, through us, for the sake of others and to the glory of Christ. so. As we continue in our lives and continue this week pursuing God and particularly in our prayer and our fasting for Him to spread His glory through our lives and through Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Take Jesus as a model. And take the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 5 to heart. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk. With wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Be, it's a perfect tense in the Greek, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit by addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody, that's intimate, in not Making melody with your heart to the Lord. So let's covet by the Spirit the tender, loving care that Jesus as High Priest so desires to minister to us with. When we don't ignore him. Let's do that this week. To the glory of his great name. And to the real sanctification and satisfaction of our hearts. Father, I ask that You pour forth Your Holy Spirit upon us, Your people, in greater measure even right now. That You, therefore, will cause us to experience depths of joy and intimacy and profound prayerful experiences this coming week with You. Because... And only because of the great Savior and sanctifier of our souls, Jesus Christ.